0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is, ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there.
2: We've been living in a paranoid hallucination since 9 11. This illusory world in which we imagine that we're under attack from these very very powerful enemies who were able to slaughter thousands of us on 9-11 and that's all it's a hollywood extravaganza and yet that's the consensus reality of many people these days because it took us too long to take apart what really happened on 9-11 it took years
0: i'm bonnie faulkner today on guns and butter dr kevin barrett today's show False Flags, From Paris to San Bernardino. Kevin Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature, French, and humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He is one of the world's best known Muslim critics of the War on Terror. He is the editor of three interfaith anthologies, 9-11 and American Empire, Volume Two, Christians, Jews, and Muslims Speak Out, we Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11. And his latest, Another French False Flag, Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino. He is the author of Truth Jihad and Questioning the War on Terror. Kevin Barrett, welcome again.
2: Hey, it's great to be back with you, Bonnie.
0: I'm reading your new anthology, Another French False Flag, Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino. You have 27 contributing authors, and I must say some extremely informative and provocative analyses, not only on false flag events in Paris and San Bernardino, but of the war on terrorism, US militarist factions, ISIS, the media, the New World Order, and on and on. I understand that you published this volume on the one-year anniversary of the Paris Charlie Hebdo attacks. Why that anniversary?
2: Well, I I see these two Paris false flags of uh, 2015 as being closely related. Uh, I was actually giving interviews in Paris about the events of January 7th in the Charlie Hebdo offices uh, on the night before. This new attack took place on Friday, the 13th of November. Uh, So I I think there's clearly a link between the two. There's a decision here that was taken apparently to target Paris. And there are probably many, many reasons for that in geopolitics uh, and military strategy. Typically, people try to achieve many different things with the same move, just like a good chess player will try to achieve many different things with the same move. Uh, but for me, you know, I, I, love Paris. I lived there for a full year back in 18, uh, ni- <laughs> not that long ago, <laughs> 1989 and 1988, 89. That's right. Uh, and so when these events happened in Paris and especially when I was first taken in by the Charlie Hebdo shooting, I actually believed the official story for a little while. Um, it, it kind of bothered me, you know, I, I, I guess Paris for me is linked with all of these images of uh, a culture that's a little smarter, a little better educated uh, than where I came from in the Midwest of the USA. So I just was offended that freedom, uh, with liberté, you know, which the French Enlightenment gave us, is being rolled back all over the planet. They're building a planetary gulag on the back of Islamophobia, and that Islamophobia is being created with these fake attacks attributed to so-called radical Muslims. And, of course, they're also manufacturing real dangerous radical Muslims like ISIS. Uh, so the whole situation is is very annoying to me, and I've been pushing back as hard as I can with these two books about the two big Paris false flags of 2015.
0: You begin the book with a series of articles that you wrote in response to and immediately following the Paris attack in which so-called terrorist events were taking place simultaneously in three different locales in central Paris on Friday the 13th, November 2015. You were actually in Paris right before these series of events in November, isn't that right?
2: Yeah, I flew out on the afternoon of Friday the 13th, Paris time. And when my plane landed at Chicago's O'Hare Airport and we got to the luggage carousel, the TVs over the luggage carousel were full of news about this new big terror atrocity in Paris. Uh, So I guess I got out right before they locked down the borders. Um, but yeah, you're right. There, there were drills going on that day. I didn't know that, of course, as I was flying out of Paris. But uh, you know, I actually went right by the Stade de France uh, on the train to the De Gaulle airport. And uh, little did I suspect that as I was on my way out of Paris, there were all of these teams of whoever they are, uh, Operation Gladio operatives, uh, deep cover military people maybe some crisis actors, all doing these drills that simulated exactly what happened. That is a multiple location uh, active shooter event.
0: Well, that's very interesting, Kevin. I wasn't uh, that aware of the drills. Of course, uh, false flag events typically and almost always uh, take place under the cover of drills, but I I didn't realize that. Where did you uh, read about the drills?
2: Well, there's a French doctor named uh, Patrick Pelou who was actually very much involved in the Charlie Hebdo affair as well. Uh, apparently, he has a direct line to the president of France, and he called him, called him up right away after this latest attack. Anyway, Pelou went on television, on, I believe it was on the 13th, or possibly the next day, and gave an interview in which he discussed the fact that he was participating in these multiple-location active shooter terror exercises when the real thing suddenly broke out, right? right on the same day. And so they had all of the emergency response prepared, and uh, they just shifted you know, seamlessly from the drill into the reality that was basically exactly the same as the drill.
0: Wow, that's a real uh, dead giveaway that reminds me of, of course, London seven seven, nine eleven, cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: right. Yeah, uh, Patrick Peloux is kind of the Peter Power of France. Peter Power is the visor consultant's terror expert who went on television on 7-7. That is, on July 7, 2005, the London bombings had just happened. And he went on television and said he was stunned that the actual attacks had happened at the precise locations and times that had been envisioned in the fictitious drills that his company had been hired to help arrange. Uh, Apparently, <laughs> nobody had explained to him <laughs> that he shouldn't say things like that in public. Um, so that that's the most extreme example. But on 9-11, we also had 46 drills relating to 9-11, of which 20-odd were actually happening on September 11th, 2001, which was the biggest. Uh, national security special event day in U.S. history. And those drills on 9-11 included live fly plane into building exercises, among others. They also included mock invasions from Russia that sent planes up to the North Pole so they wouldn't be in place to get in the way of whatever was happening uh, on that day. And, and we see that we see this over and over and over. Uh, drills uh, in San Bernardino as well, the follow-up to this most recent Paris attack. Uh, we had Uh, a facility targeted in San Bernardino, a a facility for uh, disabled people, which must be the only facility for disabled people in the world that has an active shooter drill every single month. And so when this actual event broke out at this facility, people there filmed it and just assumed it was a drill. Um, So this pattern has become familiar to us now. It appears that the Operation Gladio false flag terror specialists are very much in the habit of creating drills that simulate the attacks that they're going to stage.
0: Do we have any specific information about the drills taking place in Paris on November 13th? I mean, for instance, I mean, there were three different locations there in Paris. Uh, there was the Stade de France that you mentioned you passed on your way out of town, etc. Uh, do we know any uh, specific locales where they were staging these drills?
2: You know, I'm not sure about that. I don't think so. I uh, This Palu, I believe, uh, kind of clammed up after he made his initial statements. Uh, uh, it's, it's possible that a little bit more is known at this point. But it seems that these drills are kept secret, you know, and of course the authorities have their reasons for that. They claim that all of this is part of the war on terror and has to be all veiled in secrecy. Uh, but no, I, I don't have details about precisely where these drills uh, were were happening.
0: You refer to the Charlie Hebdo attack on January seventh, twenty fifteen, as a Gladio Two false flag. What do you mean by Gladio Two? Are you referring to NATO?
2: Yes, Operation Gladio, uh, w- the original version, was the wave of false flag terrorism that. Uh, hit all over Europe during the Cold War. It included uh, shootings in Brabant, Belgium, that killed uh, more than a dozen people, I believe. There was the train station bombing in Bologna, Italy, and the depredations of the Bader meinhof gang and the Red Brigades in Italy. All of this, at the time, we were told, was an example of the left-wingers getting out of control. Uh, we were told there was a, a serious terror threat from the left, And that was one of the reasons that Europeans were reluctant to elect strong left-wing governments. turned out that that was the whole purpose of the exercise. Uh, This Gladio wave of terror was being orchestrated by the Pentagon through NATO. NATO is really a euphemism for the U.S. military occupation of Europe. And the chiefs of NATO, that is the people reporting to the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the American Pentagon, were employing so-called stay-behind armies, meaning a bunch of deep-cover mercenaries whose job originally had supposedly been to stockpile weapons and do military training in case the Russians ever invaded Europe. But that rationale quickly disappeared, and these assets were then used to terrorize Europe Uh, And falsely blame left-wingers in order to prevent Europeans from electing left-wing governments. And it worked famously. Uh, They were able to keep their control of Europe and avoid any of these uh, independent left-wing parties from taking over any European countries. And instead we had parties like the French Socialist Party, which was actually created by the CIA, the pseudo-left-wing parties uh, taking power. So that was the original Operation Gladio. And now we're in the middle of, uh, I guess you could call it Gladio 2. And this is this new permutation of the wave of false flight terror sponsored by Western insiders. Uh, and this time, of course, it's all targeting Muslims, or rather Muslims are the patsies who are set up to be blamed for these attacks. It actually began before September 11, 2001. It appears that the earlier World Trade Center bombing In 1993 was false flag. Uh, The FBI built the bomb, and we know that because the FBI informant who had orchestrated that bombing taped himself discussing with his handler from the FBI how the FBI was supposed to have given him a dud but didn't, apparently. And he was very upset about that because a lot of people got killed. Uh, So that was one example. We had the USS Cole bombing which was attributed to a disabled uh, teenager in a dinghy, but which was probably actually a bomb planted inside the ship. And that's precisely what the government of Yemen said at the time. They investigated and their report said that this was done by the Americans themselves and so on and so forth. We had African embassy bombings as well. This whole wave of terror attributed to Muslims, has been essentially fabricated by the same people who fabricated the Vermont shooting and the Bologna bombing, the uh, killing of Aldo Moro, and the other high-profile atrocities of the Cold War in Europe. Uh, So it seems that the United States government and its deep state organized crime assets uh, seem to have some kind of need to create mayhem in, in Europe. And now, of course, it's spread all over the West and all over the world it's created a, a clash of civilizations between the West and the Islamic world. And unless people wake up a little faster than they are right now, it could continue for quite some time.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, False Flags from Paris to San Bernardino. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. There were three different locales in central Paris on November 13th where shootings ostensibly took place. La Belle Équipe Restaurant, the Bataclan Nightclub, and the Stade de France. Many questions have arisen as to what actually took place at these three different locations. Are there eyewitness reports to what happened?
2: Uh, Yes, there are. Well, you know, there are, but there are also not nearly as many photographs and videos as one might expect, uh, especially at the, at the Belle Equipe uh, and at the Bataclan nightclub. Uh, and it's it's kind of hard to tell which witness reports are credible. For instance, immediately after the events, we heard on Fox News that the perpetrators in the Bataclan nightclub had been uh, shouting about Syria and so on. We, we got a, a, a supposed eyewitness reports that turned out not to be true. Uh, the same reports on Fox News told us that uh, some of the perpetrators had been arrested, and that was not the official story the next day. Uh, so there, there were a number of dubious initial reports, and these dubious initial reports all seemed to emphasize the connection with Syria uh, later there have been other reports and some of the, uh, some of the other reports, uh, eyewitness reports have diverged significantly from the official story in various ways. For example, at the belly keep restaurant, we learned from eyewitnesses reported in the mass media, that the shooters were actually white uh, paramilitary types, large, very well muscled white paramilitary types, which does not jibe with the descriptions of the people that the French government would later blame. Uh, so there, there's a kind of a, a mishmash of eyewitness reports, uh, including various kinds of details that both fit with and don't fit with the official story. But there, there's kind of a shocking lack of. Uh, of photo and video evidence in an era in which practically everybody is walking around with a smartphone that can take very high quality pictures. Uh, There's very, very little uh, publicly available anyway on this. And you would think there would be more because you would kind of think that people could make money selling it to the media for one thing. Um, And certainly people do have a tendency to share everything that they film these days. Uh, So it's, it's interesting, for example, that the only photo or video evidence we have of any dead bodies in, in the Bataclan nightclub is this really strange image that is reproduced on the cover of, of the book, Another French False Flag. Uh, this image uh, appears to have been sort of taken from a higher, high vantage point. It shows uh, bodies on the floor of sort of, it's, I guess it's the dance floor of this nightclub and there are red smears surrounding these bodies in the shape of a heart, Uh, and one has to wonder what created those smears. Uh, One could imagine very, very bloody bodies being dragged around the floor to paint this sort of heart shape on the floor, but why would they do that? Uh, And there's actually probably too much blood. Uh, And there are other questions about this picture as well. Uh, A couple of the bodies seem to be Anatomically impossible in terms of the positions that they're in, uh, these positions would be possible if what we're being told our bodies were in fact dapper cadavers, which are fake bodies sold to Hollywood and to others who you know have a, have a use for fake bodies. I suppose drills uh, would use them as well. Um so there there are, are a whole lot of questions about the witness reports both the ones that seem reliable and the ones that have been proven false uh but the biggest question to me so far is really the lack of uh, photo documentation at the Bella Keep for example nobody got a picture of this car with the three white paramilitary guys uh nobody got the license plate uh one would really think that there would be a lot more of that um and who knows you know, whether people in Paris who are investigating this, uh, and there are a couple of, you know, a handful of alternative journalists who are brave enough to take this stuff on, will perhaps uh, shed more light on this as time goes on.
0: You mentioned this uh, extremely strange picture from the Bataclan nightclub, uh, a portion of which, like you say, appears on the cover. Of your new anthology, if people want to look at this picture, where can they find it? Is it available?
2: Well, the most of the versions of it on the internet are uh, not in in the highest resolution that we have. Um, but I guess if if you feed into a search engine like Google Images, uh, Bataclan nightclub, uh, you know bodies, French terror text, things like that, you'll probably find it. Uh, and if you look around for a while, you might find the higher resolution versions and the ones that haven't had, uh, various kinds of masking put over the bodies and things like that. Um, it's, it is a fairly horrific image, but it, it really does raise questions. And and one of the questions is, uh, you know, are they, are they messing with us? I mean, why, why would they just leave these bodies there? You know, there, there's no medical attention, nothing like that. Uh, and, and what Painted this heart-shaped smear with this these you know six foot wide smears of blood or whatever that red stuff is that they painted the heart on the floor of the nightclub with uh, precisely what is going on with this and I've discussed this with with various people with some law enforcement and military backgrounds and they have uh, thrown up their hands and said this this picture doesn't make any sense. Um,
0: Now, you've also mentioned the lack of photographic evidence in general. I mean, with the exception of the strange uh, and sort of grisly photograph that we've been discussing, are there any other photos at all of all of these uh, three simultaneous shootings in Paris?
2: Well, yeah, sure, there are, and there are some videos as well. I think there are some videos of people fleeing uh, the nightclub and things like that, but not a lot. Uh, it's it's kind of shocking how uh, how few there are. You know, one one would think that in the nightclub itself there would be some photos and videos, but what we have is that crazy picture that we've been discussing of the heart painted in blood on the dance floor with the dapper cadavers or the bodies in very unusual positions uh, arranged. And then we also have a very famous iconic photo that was supposedly taken right before the shootings, taken from the band, the Eagles of Death Metal, as they were playing uh, from their vantage point, showing the crowd dancing uh, to the music. And that's a very, very high quality picture. Some say it looks a little too high quality. There's been a discussion of whether that photo is authentic or not and i didn't include the people saying it's not authentic in the book because i looked at that back and forth discussion and when people like massimo Mazuko, a uh, former professional photographer who's quite a you know a, f- a skeptic on false flags uh, looked at this uh, he said that that photo was probably uh, real so in any case uh, there's that iconic photo of the audience there's the iconic photo that i just mentioned of the heart painted in blood on the dance floor with bodies strewn around and then there are these sort of uh, a handful of these things of you know people fleeing from the nightclub and and things like that but not very much i mean there's there's you can't look uh look around and find you know dozens or hundreds and you would kind of think you would you certainly think that you would find people would have taken stuff on their iphones from inside the nightclub during the show during the shooting how could nobody take any photo? I mean, sure they're trying to save themselves, but there are a few thousand people in there of all those people. uh, You'd think a couple would have taken some shots and they'd be worth a lot of money and they would go to the media, but there's, there's nothing. So it's uh, a bit of a mystery and whether that will all get cleared up and maybe some photos will emerge in the future. uh, It's a, it's a possibility. I don't know.
0: Who is Mohammed Boutiche and why is he important?
2: Well, Mohammed Boutish, uh, as I recall, was the acquaintance of the uh, Kouachi brothers, who were the Patsy's blamed for the Charlie Hebdo event. And uh, there were all sorts of questions about those guys, <laughs> beginning with the fact that the Interior Minister, Bernard Cazeneuve, on the very day of the Charlie Hebdo attacks on January 7th, 2015, uh, Kaznev said that there were three terrorists in the Charlie Hebdo offices, And the official story and all of the supporting evidence only shows two. uh, What made him think there were three? Well, a third later popped up. Two days later, a third guy, uh, Koulibale, took hostages in the Kosher Deli. Uh, So there are all sorts of questions about these uh, Kawachi brothers that were blamed for shooting up the Charlie Hebdo offices. Uh, among them, if indeed they were members of Al Qaeda in Yemen and other terror groups, why would the French police hunt them down like dogs and execute them, rather than making some effort to capture them alive and interrogate them and take down their networks? Uh, and it turns out that maybe the reason that the French police had no interest in capturing these brothers alive was that the Guashi brothers were working for French intelligence, uh, and so we we got word from Mohammed Boutish, um, uh, among others, that there are actually eyewitnesses, including him, to the fact that these guys were intelligence assets. And we have a lot of reasons for thinking that. They were, made all sorts of uh, impossible journeys to the Middle East, for example, going to Israel and then to countries where you can't go if you have an Israeli stamp in your passport, among other things. Uh, all sorts of very improbable aspects of their biographies. And one of them, for example, is that the Kawachi brothers were arrested with child pornography. uh, And then that was just dropped. They were never prosecuted. And in such a situation, when you have two guys like this who are close to supposed radical Islamist currents, uh, you can be sure that those guys became intelligence assets. And that's why those charges went away. Uh, So, anyway, uh, Boutiche apparently had firsthand knowledge that the Kawachi brothers were intelligence assets. And he was arrested uh, a few months ago, actually a little bit before this latest uh, false flag. And according to some of his friends and supporters in France, they're trying to silence him and they're trying to prevent him from uh, publicly uh, affirming his firsthand knowledge that the Kwachi brothers were French intelligence assets.
0: You mentioned two writers who have contributed to this anthology who write that the Charlie Hebdo event had a prequel and a sequel with similar scripts and themes, i.e. the Mohammed Mera affair and the Copenhagen attacks. On December 2nd, 2015, There was news of 14 people being killed and more than 20 injured in a shooting at Inland Regional Center, a facility for disabled people in San Bernardino, California. You described San Bernardino as a sequel to the Triple Paris attacks. Are there similarities in script and theme this time around, and are the script and themes the same or different from the Charlie Hebdo attacks?
2: Well, I think we've seen a shift, Bonnie. I think that in the Charlie Hebdo attacks, which had a prequel, which is the Mohammed Merah shooting, and then they had a sequel, which was the Copenhagen attacks, we saw exactly the same pattern with all three events. In all three events, there was a two-part attack, and the first part targeted a national symbol or free speech, and then the second part targeted Jews. Uh, in the case of Mohammed Mera, which was a couple of years before Charlie Hebdo, uh, somebody supposedly shot up some French soldiers. And then somebody supposedly shot up a Jewish school. And the same guy, Mohamed Murrah, was blamed for both events. But he certainly didn't do them because uh, eyewitnesses uh, reported that the actual shooters of the French soldiers had white power tattoos. Uh, They Obviously, it wasn't Mohamed Murrah. In any case, so their two-part attack, first part targets French soldiers, then they target a Jewish school with the Charlie Hebdo events. The first part targeted free speech, namely the cartoonists. The second part targeted the kosher deli, that is is Jews. And then in in Copenhagen, we had the same thing. We had uh, the first attack targeted a free speech event celebrating anti-Islam cartoonists. And then the second part targeted a synagogue. So in all three of these events, We had exactly the same script, you know, two dubiously linked uh, attacks. The first one targets a national symbol or free speech. The second one targets some kind of Jewish target. And I think that the reason for that probably was, of course, to reinforce the same thing that we heard, or rather that the police in New York heard on 9-11 when they arrested the Israeli spies who were caught dancing and celebrating the success of the attacks. Uh, were found to have thousands of dollars in cash stuffed in their socks, working for a moving company uh was well-known to be a Mossad front, urban moving systems run by Dominic Souter, man the FBI even put out warrants on as a terrorist. Uh, these are these guys, when they were arrested by the New York police for you know being Mossad agents celebrating the success of their operation when the Trade Center was blown up, these guys uh, told the police, uh, we're not your problem, the Palestinians are your problem and our problem, we have the same problem. And that's the theme of the war on terror is that the, Israeli, the Israelis have the same enemy as the West. Now, it's true that the Israelis do have a, a local Arab Muslim enemy. They've gone and you know, ethnically cleansed, arguably committed genocide in the heartland of Islam, uh, the holy land that's been Islamically administered ever since Islam began with a couple of brief Crusader interludes uh, a 1,000 years ago. So so the Israelis do have a problem with, quote-unquote, Islamic terrorism. That is, Muslims support the Palestinian liberation struggle. And Israel faces a very uh, troubled and dubious future. But the West does not have any problem whatsoever with Islam. There's no such problem. The Islamic world has been the ally of the West uh, in the struggle against communism during the Cold War, and you know, for better or worse. <laughs> and so, so anyway, the, the war on terror is really all about trying to brainwash the Western public into believing that the actual enemies of Israel are, in fact, also enemies of "quote unquote" the West, which they're not. Uh, So that's the script overall for this war on terror. We saw that on 9-11 with those Israeli spies uh, arrested saying it. And that was the theme that was hammered home with those three events in a row, uh, two in France and then one in Copenhagen last year.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, False Flags from Paris to San Bernardino. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So now we're, we're in a slightly different mode, I think, with these this new Paris attack and the follow-up, or the sequel in San Bernardino. Here, uh, rather than having the victims of the attack being people that Muslims might conceivably have some kind of hatred for, like the French military uh, in the Mohammed Mera event, like the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists in that event or like the anti-Islam cartoonists in Copenhagen, now we're seeing these supposed radical Muslims attacking people pretty randomly, Uh, people that no radical Muslim would ever really have any problem with. In Paris, these recent attacks targeted people at a soccer match, uh, people at a rock concert, and people at a restaurant. So a nightclub, a restaurant, a soccer match. And these were basically middle-class, educated, mostly white, French young people uh, in the Paris attack. And then they were disabled people targeted in San Bernardino. Interestingly, the precise demographic that was targeted in Paris is the demographic that has been leading France towards a more and more pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli policy. Uh, So by targeting that demographic and and ascribing the attacks to radical Muslims, uh, this is turning around the political dynamic in France, it's steering it away from its turn towards uh, Palestine and away from Israel. So I think that's the new pattern with these two attacks. And I think the San Bernardino attack was maybe partly done to bring the U.S. into the picture, because uh, these Paris attacks have been propagandizing the U.S. Americans notice when something terrible like this happens in Paris. They don't notice when it happens in a place like Nigeria, where far more people have been killed in much bigger terror attacks, but nobody even blinks here, uh, or in Syria, or in so many other places around the world. But Paris, yes, the Americans will notice it. And so then if you stage a follow-up shortly after the big Paris attack in November, stage a follow-up in early December in San Bernardino, that gets the Americans and sort of the West as a whole uh, dragged into it. Uh, But again, uh, targeting disabled people who've never done radical Muslims any harm whatsoever, targeting young, educated French people who have been pushing their country to become more and more pro-Palestinian, this would make no sense whatsoever from any strategic standpoint of actual radical Muslims, but it makes a lot of sense from the strategic standpoint of the Zionists who want to drag the West into a war on Islam for Israel.
0: Did the alleged Islamic terrorists in the San Bernardino attacks have any odd connections to Israel?
2: Well, indeed they did. Uh, let's see, it was the brother, I think, you know, I am i don't have the precise details in front of me right now, but uh, to the best of my recollection, uh, the couple that was blamed for the San Bernardino attack, uh, falsely in my judgment. Uh, had a close family relationship with a pair of Russian-Israeli sisters. And the speculation there has not been confirmed that uh, there was an intelligence connection. We we don't know for sure, but it's interesting how these kinds of Israeli connections kind of keep popping up with, with these events. Uh, over and over and over, we find uh, some sort of Israeli connection. Just for example, with the Charlie Hebdo attacks, we had... The alleged radical Muslim terrorists fleeing the Charlie Hebdo offices where they just shot a bunch of cartoonists, we're told, and they fled in their getaway car straight to the center of uh, the radical pro-Israeli part of Paris, Uh, well, the center of the Jewish quarter of Paris, and they dropped off their getaway car. And then conveniently, apparently, happened to lose their identification card, which we're told is the only reason they were caught, <laughs> because they dropped their ID card in the abandoned getaway car. They did this right in front of Patty Story Restaurant, which is the local Paris headquarters for the Jewish Defense League, which is considered a terrorist group here in the U.S., uh, and every year, the Patti story hosts a huge celebration for the Israeli defense forces. So we're told that the radical Muslim terrorist chose the exact spot uh, you know, right in front of the, the place where they have a huge celebration of the IDF every year to drop off their abandoned getaway car, throw their ID cards down and carjack a new car and drive away. What a strange place to do that. Um, And and so likewise, when we have this sudden close family connection to a couple of very dubious looking (laughs) Russian-Israeli women, uh, it it does make us uh, scratch our heads.
0: The reason I brought that up, Kevin, is I happened to read on the Daily Mail that long article about these sisters. So uh, it was just kind of a coincidence that I had happened to to see that article on the Daily Mail, which is a tabloid site, but every now and again, they'll have something quite interesting on there. So I tend to check it out once in a while. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I do too. They, I believe the Daily Mail also covered... The whole controversy uh, in, during the, the Charlie Hebdo attack, or rather the aftermath, um, about uh, the the whole issue of Sharb of the editor of Charlie Hebdo, uh, supposedly had this girlfriend uh, Jeanette Bougrab, and immediately after the attack, the whole world was treated to these images of Jeanette Bougrab, who's a former minister from the Sarkozy extreme Zionist government, uh, publicly and histrionically uh, lamenting the loss of the love of her life, uh, Sharp, the editor of Charlie Hebdo. But suddenly, <laughs> we learn, thanks to these tabloids like the Daily Mail, that all of Sharp's family was denying that there had been any such relationship and that Jeanette Bougab was barred from his funeral. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes this kind of truth emerges best in the tabloids.
0: Yeah, that's right. The attorney in the San Bernardino shooting case has stated that the government's case does not add up. What is some of the credible evidence so far that negates the official narrative of what happened there? You list 10 obvious points that don't add
2: up. Right. Well, I was very pleased to see that finally we have a defense attorney willing to stand up and question the official story that supposedly implicates his clients. We haven't seen very much of that in the past. In particular, uh, in the Boston case, uh, it's just really sad that we have an innocent man uh, condemned to death because his lawyer sold him out. Uh, but here in the San Bernardino case, we had a very brave lawyer who stood up and said, this case doesn't add up. And among the things that he questioned were the the whole story of how this couple supposedly died in the shootout. You know, We're told that the couple blamed for the shooting in San Bernardino you know shot at police first and yet their windows were rolled up the car has had its windows blasted out but they were they were rolled up uh, so how did these people initiate a gun battle through rolled up windows or carry out a gun battle through rolled up windows and the pictures of them dead show them in handcuffs one might surmise that what really happened was they were just executed as police unleashed a barrage of fire through the windows of their car. And uh, perhaps they were already in handcuffs at that point. Who knows? Um, There's there's that aspect and another aspect of, of this. And I think maybe the most important is that we have multiple credible eyewitness reports that the actual shooters in this facility for disabled people, it wasn't a couple. It wasn't this Muslim couple that they blamed. It was three, not two, but three large white paramilitaries. Uh, And, you know, if you hear that from one witness, that's interesting. And, you know, hear it from two witnesses, it's a lot more than interesting. And I think we have three now, uh, which to my mind is kind of a uh, pretty much a dead giveaway. Uh, And, you know, whether this attorney's team has been warned to stop poking around in this stuff, I don't know. But it certainly was uh, was very curious how we were told that the couple initiated a gun battle and died, uh, yet they did this through rolled up windows, and that the witnesses who saw the actual shooting say it was three large white paramilitaries.
0: Well, uh, uh, Kevin, you also point out in uh, your articles in the book, if the couple was really part of a terrorist network, would the FBI have let the media ransack the crime scene? The internet was filled with the mass media going through these people's house.
2: Yes, that was very strange, wasn't it? We're told that this couple was linked to two, not just one, but two radical Islamist terror networks. And so once again, let me emphasize, they should have been captured alive if that were the case. Uh, I believe that Uh, To prevent further atrocities, it would be worth taking extraordinary risks to make sure they were captured alive uh, if they were really the kind of terrorists we're told they were. Uh, Instead, they were apparently executed, it looks like, by police. Uh, And and then we were treated to this outrageous spectacle uh, two days later of the crime scene, that is the apartment of this couple that was being blamed for this mass murder being ransacked uh, by media and just hangers-on, a, a crowd of random people followed some media people into their apartment. The landlord opened it up. There were there's no police tape, no crime scene tape, no securing the crime scene, nothing like that, and so they just barged into their apartment and started, you know, grabbing a Quran and holding it up to the cameras, oh, see, they must have been radical Muslims, they had a Quran and things like this, uh, totally disturbing all of the evidence, assuming there was actually evidence there of any kind of crime. And uh, many of argued, and I would agree with them, that if this were really the kind of uh, terrorist crime that we were told it was, that wouldn't have happened. None of this would have happened this way. The, they would have tried to capture the terrorists alive and, and question them and take down their network. Uh, They would have secured the the apartment very, very carefully. I mean, who knows what might be in there that could tie in to these radical terror networks. But apparently the authorities, uh, the FBI, I guess, in this case, allowed the, the media and uh, a bunch of people whose identities we don't even know, just random people from the neighborhood maybe, uh, to go into that apartment and just tear it apart uh, a couple of days after the crime. Uh, So this is a huge red flag.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, False Flags from Paris to San Bernardino. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Yes, and you also ask, why would Inland Regional Center for Disabled People conduct active shooter drills every month or so? That, uh, that doesn't make any sense, does it?
2: It doesn't, but that's what the Los Angeles Times reported. It's that they have an active shooter drill there every month. Uh, and the Los Angeles Times is it used to be one of our better newspapers. Uh, and we know this. We learned this right away on the day of the shooting a video was posted on social media by somebody who works at the inland regional center and they were filming out the window of the facility as the police arrived and whoever the SWAT team or paramilitaries the official response was coming in and guys with big guns were jumping out of cars and as they filmed the the workers were saying uh, oh it's it's another drill you know we have these drills all the time uh, and, and that went up immediately and, of course, it got a lot of attention from people like me who question these events. Uh, so, yes, it does seem very, very, very odd that uh, of all places for something like this to happen, it would be at a facility where they have drills mimicking this kind of event uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, it's almost as if they're using it as a training center, almost like a Hollywood stage or something. And they've been you know, drilling and drilling and drilling, and now they decided to take one live.
0: What I also found quite interesting was right after the San Bernardino shootings, there were multiple, multiple images put out by the authorities of the event, so-called. But when I looked at these photographs of the shooting, it looked to me like they were photographs of a drill. And so what is very strange is that There probably, as far as I've been able to tell, an actual shooting did take place there, but that the photographs of the event were really of a drill. Did you notice that?
2: Uh, No. Maybe you you should send me some of that information, and I can include it in the uh, next edition of the book.
0: Yes, I'll do that. Again, that was the Daily Mail. It was multiple, multiple pictures but it was—it looked like a drill, of course, it, which doesn't prove anything one way or the other about what actually happened there. But um, it, it just said to me that you have to be pretty careful about uh, drawing conclusions about what actually went on in a place just because of whatever the evidence is that's being provided by the authorities. But yes, I'll look for that and send it to you, uh, Kevin.
2: Great. I appreciate that, Bonnie. Yeah, you, you can't really trust the images the media gives you uh, about this or, or all sorts of events. For instance, this migrant crime wave in Europe that we're hearing about, uh, there's been all sorts of bogus uh, stuff circulating on the internet, and some of it has been picked up by the media. Pictures of things from you know years and years and years ago, like there was some crime in which some uh, I think a woman beat up her domestic partner. And so the beat up woman from that thing that happened years and years ago has been circulating. And they're saying this is somebody who was victimized by uh, Syrian refugees in Europe. Uh, and we're seeing this kind of thing more and more. And the mainstream media does it too. You know, on 9-11, we were inundated with images of supposedly celebrating Palestinians. Uh, those images were up on, on the media, on the mainstream TV channels within a few hours of the trade towers getting hit. And yet we know now, thanks to an investigation by German public television, that those images were bogus. Uh, a number of them showed events that happened long before 9-11, including martyrs funerals. And then uh, it appears that one of them at least, maybe two were children who were celebrating because the media had said, here, we'll give you some candy if you'll jump up and down and act like you're celebrating. So on nine eleven, the media, gave us these bogus images of Palestinian celebrations, and uh, that's a very strong lesson that we should be careful about how we're being emotionally manipulated by the kinds of imagery that the media feeds us. They apparently no longer feel like they need to verify the kinds of uh, images that they put out. They're mostly uh, playing us for emotional effect.
0: What can you tell us about what an eyewitness to the San Bernardino shootings has reported?
2: Well, I believe the first eyewitness that was widely reported to uh, be testifying that the shooting was conducted by three large white paramilitaries and not by this Muslim couple with a petite woman, 100 pound woman, five foot tall who... The authorities tell us was lugging around this huge pile of equipment and tweeting while she was shooting. Supposedly, uh, posting her uh, her pro ISIS posts on social media as she was uh, shooting people. Uh, but the I think it was Sally Abdul McGee was the first witness who said that it was three white uh, paramilitaries, and I think there are two more witnesses now as well. Uh, and these witnesses sound pretty uh, authentic. I mean, and their testimony was broadcast by the mainstream media. And in a couple of cases, in the case of Sally Abdelmagid, I believe the interviewer was a little puzzled when she reported that it was these three paramilitaries. And as he signed off, he said, well, they're telling us that it was actually uh, a couple or something. There were only two shooters. Uh, but that, that kind of discrepancy really uh, needs to be cleared up. And I did have an investigator call up and try to get in touch with these witnesses and uh apparently two of the witnesses are not talking to anybody anymore and i don't know if they've been warned or told not to talk or what but none of them have recanted none of them have said oh actually we made a mistake it was two shooters not three uh so make of that what you will
0: were there similar eyewitness reports in the two different Paris attacks that reported seeing white paramilitary types carrying out the shootings?
2: Uh, well, yes, there were uh, at the uh, Belly Keep restaurant. Uh, there was a, a limousine, I believe, or a, uh, some kind of uh, fancy car, a big a vehicle pulled up, uh, and these guys jumped out and started shooting. And the eyewitness reports Some of them, anyway, told us that these were very muscular, paramilitary-looking individuals who looked as if they were carrying out a a very, you know, kind of uh, military mission, very precision timing and everything. They looked very, very professional and then, you know, jumped in the car and, and sped away in the direction of the Bataclan nightclub. And once again, it's interesting how we see this pattern so many times. We saw this with the Mohamed Merah event, uh, which was the precursor to Charlie Hebdo, in which the shooters of the French soldiers were wearing white power tattoos. So here we had white uh, paramilitaries. And uh, then we, we see the same thing again in Paris, and we see the same thing in San Bernardino
0: what did Karl Rove have to say about, quote, creating reality? And how does it relate to the tendency of most people to remain uncertain and unwilling to face up to what's taking place in the world?
2: Well, you're, uh, I think, referring to a quote that Karl Rove gave to Ron Susskind uh, many years ago. At the time, Susskind didn't tell us who said it, but we now know that it was Rove. Uh, and in that quote, Rove was scoffing at the people that he referred to as the reality-based community. And he he said that uh, that's not the way the world works anymore. He said that we're an empire now, and we create our own reality. And as you... (laughs) forget the precise words, investigate us uh, judiciously as you will, we'll just go out and create more realities. And that's how it's going to play out from now on. Uh, we'll always be a step ahead of you, you know, creating, manufacturing these false realities. And you guys who think that you you can figure out what real reality is, yeah, you, you know, you're going to be way behind us. And I think that quote really sums up the reasons why we need to work quickly and powerfully to oppose this kind of psychological operation. Because if we wait and study these events judiciously, as you will, as Karl Rove said, then we'll be too late. Uh, The problem is that people's impressions of these very emotionally affecting events are molded very, very quickly in the heat of the moment. And we know from psychological research that when people are in that kind of emotional state of shock, that the impressions that they get at that moment then become permanent and very, very difficult to change. And as time goes by after this kind of event, the more time goes by, the more likely that it's going to be very, very hard to alter people's perceptions of that event. So uh, I argue in this book against some very smart people. I I actually started this argument with Paul Zaremka, who's a, a professor in New York, who argued that we shouldn't try to deconstruct this Paris terror attack uh, so soon after it happened. You know, From his perspective, as a very uh, reality-based academician, he would probably argue that, oh, we can't really understand anything until a lot of time has gone by and we've sifted and winnowed through all the evidence over years and decades. Uh, and I think there's something to that. Uh, i'm not sure we ever get to the reality though even decades later but that is the uh, usual academic methodology but today we're dealing with these psychopaths in power who are experts in manipulating us with these shock and awe false flag events and if we don't react very quickly and strongly to these events and if we don't try to expose them almost in real time as powerfully as we can We are essentially allowing these people, like Karl Rove, to create a matrix for us, a matrix world of illusion. And that matrix world of illusion is not in our interests. We've been living in a paranoid hallucination since 9-11, this illusory world in which we imagine that we're under attack from these very, very powerful enemies who were able to slaughter thousands of us on 9-11. Uh, And that's all, it's a Hollywood extravaganza. And yet that's the consensus reality of many people these days because it took us too long to take apart what really happened on 9-11. It took years. It took me two years to realize that we'd had controlled demolitions in New York, that there had been no hijackings and the Pentagon was bombed and or hit by a cruise missile. Uh, I didn't realize that for two years. And by the time I got on the case and started working on it, I think most people had already internalized their impressions from uh, the moment, and it was going to be very, very hard to change them. You know, there's a minority of people are critical thinkers who can step back and rethink things. Uh, And those people, by and large, have come around to seeing things from the 9-11 truth perspective. But a lot of people are really not capable of that. And so if if we want to really try to help our culture stay tuned into the truth— We need to get off the gun, you know, like a sprinter when the gun goes off, just heading out at full speed. As soon as something like this happens, we need to push back, we need to investigate, and we need to use well-crafted polemics to convince as many people as we can to take this thing with a grain of salt that over and over we've seen this pattern these big spectacular events are false flags we need to scream that from the rooftops every time something like this happens and come up with the very very best arguments that we can uh and in so doing perhaps uh one day god willing we can get back, uh, not just the world that we had before 9-11 and before the so-called war on terror, uh, but we could get to a a whole new kind of world because the elites have been manipulating us in various ways for such a long time. And today with these new communications technologies and the spread of education and literacy, I think we're capable of, uh, of rising above that and of uh, stopping this kind of, you know, creation of wars through these engineered provocations. And that is the way it's been done for so long here. And, we, you know, we've actually had that admitted to us. Uh, there's a, a guy from the uh, WNAP, uh, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, uh, who admitted this on tape, saying that this is how we get into wars. You know, He said, we need a war with Iran, but we're going to have to wait until we come up with a false flag so it looks like the iranians struck first uh, he said that's how it's always been done he, he went over a long list of american wars all of which were launched with a false flag event he said you got to wait till the false flag before you can have your war <laughs> so uh, it, that's true that's it's been going on forever but now we're smarter we've got the internet and if we push back quickly, rather than you know saving this for the history books and letting the professors 50 years from now sift through all of this and then say, oh, well, it turns out that 9-11 was an inside job and these Paris attacks were an inside job and 7-7 was an inside job. This was all part of a Gladio B uh, false flag terror program designed to keep this clash of civilizations going and and throw profits at the arms manufacturers and help the hardline Israelis continue to persecute Palestinians, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If we wait that long, there's going to be all kinds of suffering. The world will be degraded, and that world 50 years from now where these professors will be sifting through all this information may not be a very nice world. So I think we need to react quickly and powerfully, and, and that's kind of the uh, the thread of argument that runs through this book, Another French False Flag. And I did include a couple of people to argue against it, you know, just to, to make it an interesting discussion.
0: Kevin Barrett, thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you, Bonnie. Uh, you're one of the greatest interviewers anywhere. <laughs> Keep it up.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show has been False Flags from Paris to San Bernardino. Dr. Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature. French and Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He holds a PhD in African languages Arabic with an Islamic studies focus from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the editor of three interfaith anthologies 9-11 and American Empire volume 2 Christians Jews and Muslims speak out we are not Charlie Hebdo Free Thinkers question the French 9-11 and his latest, Another French False Flag, Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino. He is the author of Truth, Jihad, and Questioning the War on Terror. He has appeared many times on broadcast media and has lectured extensively in Morocco, Turkey, and Iran, as well as the U.S. and Europe. Kevin Barrett's radio programs are archived at noliesradio.org. Visit his website at truthjihad.com. That's truthjihad.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at g Radio.
1: Hey, yo! of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look this inside yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me